Have your goals, your visions, visualize everything, but detach your happiness from the outcome. I learned this great thing, and if you take one thing away from today, just think about this. My happiness is the enjoyment of the pursuit of my potential. From RevThink, you're listening to the RevThinking Podcast, a conversation between creative entrepreneurs who know the best way to deal with the future is to create it. I'm Joel Pilger. Today is part one of a conversation with David Meltzer, co-founder and chief executive officer at Sports One Marketing. Welcome to RevThinking. RevThink leverages years of experience and practical wisdom to help owners of top creative studios. So you don't have to choose between following your passion and running your business. Now here's your host, Joel Pilger. Hello everyone. Hey, just a few weeks ago out in Los Angeles at the Terranea Resort, Tim Thompson and I were there leading a Creative Entrepreneurs Conference in partnership with Promax BDA. And the title of the conference was Bulletproofing Profits. Now, I'm going to share with you today a session that was delivered during that conference by David Meltzer. But first, I do want to share a couple quick announcements that first, uh, Tim and I will be in New York City next week for two days of business intelligence briefings. This is where we sit down with owners and principals to share our insights on the shifting trends in the industry that will be affecting their businesses in the year ahead. Also, being the holiday season, we are looking forward to the Promax BDA holiday parties that are coming up in New York City and Los Angeles. We will be attending one or maybe even both of those, so we look forward to seeing some of you there at those parties. Those are always fun events. Now back to today's episode. Who is David Meltzer? Well, David is the co-founder and chief executive officer at Sports One Marketing. David is an executive, he's an author, and a humanitarian, and he's best known for his work in the field of sports marketing. He's a featured speaker at conferences, corporate meetings, seminars, and other events, and he's also been featured in the New York Times, in Sporting News, Fox Business, and Bloomberg. Well, we invited David to speak at our conference because we knew with a topic like bulletproofing profits that our audience might show up thinking that we were just going to talk all about money. But much to everyone's surprise, we revealed that profits in a creative firm are really not about money, but rather about choices and about maintaining control of your business. Well, David provided us a much needed break from all the talk of numbers, as well as a a dose of inspiration, sharing his ideas from his books. One of those is titled Connected to Goodness, and the other book is titled Compassionate Capitalism. You are about to be likewise inspired by David's message of success and failure and redemption and purpose. So let's get started with part one. Here is Tim Thompson with our guest, David Meltzer. I want you guys to meet my friend, David. Uh, David and I go back a few years now. Hey, Mr. Man, got a hug? Good, sir. Good to see you. Um, uh, One of my side jobs, actually, is I started a sports marketing company with my brother. My brother worked for the Dallas Cowboys, um, the Dodgers, and then he went independent. He didn't know how to run a business. So I said, well, that's what I do for a living. If you go do the sports marketing side, I'll do the business side. So it's been fun, and along the way, we meet people like David. Uh, David owns a company called Sports One Marketing. Um, his business partner is Hall of Fame quarterback Warren Moon. So anybody, football? Who's a football fan? Yeah. So Warren's actually a two-time Hall of Famer, Canada and the NFL. Um, is he the only one? Only one. Holy cow. First African-American. First African-American, yeah. A quarterback, right. 
Um, and, so, and so David and Warren started a business, Sports One Marketing. David is the CEO. Um, and they're, it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing business. I've actually watched David, even himself, kind of go through an evolution of entrepreneur to, to premier speaker. He's one of the top five speakers, um, Forbes, and entrepreneur, entrepreneur right? So David's, David himself has gone through evolution himself. He's an entrepreneur. Um, you know, we call ourselves creative entrepreneurs. Uh, David's asset is artists as well. They just have to be athletes. They just have to be able to throw very well and swim very well and skate very well. Um, but they're performers as well, and they step up. Um, there's a lot of opportunity of value. Um, there's things that David has to unlock for that value to open up the opportunities for his clients. Um, and in doing that process, David's had to even walk through his own process. So I'm going to let you tell a little bit of the story. Sure. Uh, talk about Lee and whatever. Yeah. But I just want everyone to give uh, David a round of applause. Thank you for coming. So, yeah, yeah, why don't you start with... Uh, a little bit of yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Okay. I'll give you a little background in my journey. Um, hopefully I won't go too... We can just stand. Too, I'll right? stand. For, I'm, if, as long as you say, are you standing? <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I used to hang out with athletes, so it's ridiculous how sore my neck gets from this all day long. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so, I, you know, I'm going to tell a little bit of journey. I'll, I'll take you quickly through it, but get a high idea. I grew up uh, in Ohio, and I had uh, five five uh, siblings, four brothers and a sister. But I grew up really poor. My mom was a teacher. My dad had left when I was really young. And so my whole vision of life was, uh, you know, I grew up really happy, but I, I thought happiness was equated to making a lot of money. And I'll tell you why, because the only time that I wasn't happy was I'd come in and see my mom crying because she couldn't afford, you know, a car that would break down or send us to summer camp. What made it even more difficult for me is my siblings they love to study, they're extremely academic. It was great for my mom uh, to have these siblings of mine, all ended up at Harvard, Penn, Columbia. I, on the other hand, uh, wasn't quite as academic. I was hyper, probably they would define it as ADD now, but my mom's solution to ADD was run around the block. And so <laughs> I became really fast and I thought, I did. I thought, well, you know what, I'll make money by being a professional football player. And I worked really hard at that. And it wasn't like, I'm born naturally a gifted academic, but I, my siblings studied really hard. For me, I got one B in high school and I'm not sure I studied. And I got a really high score on my SAT, but I, I almost laugh at my siblings, like, why are you guys working so hard? But they ended up at Harvard and Penn. I, I uh, went to Occidental College to play football. Um, some of you may know where that is, but it was literally in a long, long, long list of colleges that want me to play. Yeah, right. All, right. all two? All, all one. one. <laughs> yeah. That would give me money because I couldn't afford to go to college. So one of the criteria to go to college, I did get accepted to Princeton, actually, but they weren't going to give me any money. So I, I did not, uh, couldn't afford college. So I got a full scholarship there, played football. The greatest thing about Occidental is that my first football game my freshman year I played against Azusa Pacific, and I was the bullet on the kickoff team. So hadn't seen any football, Division Three, not huge football. So I'm flying down, and this guy catches the ball. I break through the wall. I'm so like excited. I weigh like 147 pounds at that time. <laughs> and I wrap the guy up, and literally, I'm the first person ever to get an autograph from Christian Okoye. Uh, so he autographed my jersey with his foot. <laughs> yeah, <right>. <laughs> <laughs> nah, he ran, so he ran me over. So my dream of quickly <laughs> becoming rich playing football, I was like, this is Division Three, and this guy's like this. I'm like, I better start studying. Uh, 
<laughs> my older brother was already doing his residency at UCLA, top of his class. And so I went over after the season to visit him. I decided to be pre-med. I was good at math. And I'm like, oh, I'll be a doctor, you know, make all this money. And I walk in the hospital to visit my brother and look around. I'm like, man, I hate hospitals. That wouldn't work. <laughs> and my brother looks at me and goes, are you kidding me? You're going to be a doctor? I go, I want to be a hospital doctor. I was 18, right? And just to give you some perspective, I'm 18. I'm like, I don't want to be a hospital doctor. I'll be a pediatrician. I want to help kids. I have an office in the neighborhood like my pediatrician. He goes, you idiot. You know you have to like actually be in a hospital if you're going to be a doctor. I was like, really? <laughs> so then... He gave me a good piece of advice, though. He said to me, he goes, David, you need to be more interested than interesting. And that's really a motto of mine uh, that shifted a paradigm for me, uh, especially I ran um, a company called Lee Steinberg Sports and Entertainment. That's where I met Warren. We represented him and about $2 billion in management. And uh, Lee, everyone wanted my job, right? Jerry Maguire, most people know him. We co-produced that with Cameron Crowe. Everyone would come up to me, especially young kids. Oh, Mr. Meltzer, I want to be just like you. I want to be a sports agent. And I always remember my brother and how stupid I was that I want to be a doctor, that these kids have no idea what it's like yeah, to be a sprite. Right. Exactly. And in fact, my favorite is someone actually came up to me once and said, Mr. McGuire. I went, and I was like, oh my God, please be more interested than interesting. Uh, I then decided quickly I'd be a lawyer because that seemed like the next best way to make money. Went to Tulane Law School to be an oil and gas lawyer. They were the top maritime law school in the country. Studied in Greece. But when I graduated law school, and my journey's almost over, it goes quick after this, uh, <laughs> uh, I had a choice to work in the internet or be a real lawyer and work in, as a litigator in oil and gas. So I went to my trusted advisor, my mom, who had sacrificed everything for me. And I said, Mom, should I be a real lawyer or work in the internet uh, selling legal research online? And she literally looked at me in, in an instant and said, you need to be a real lawyer because this internet thing, this internet thing's a fad. <laughs> so I learned the second valuable lesson in my journey right there. Just, and it's really important because it's parents and as still some of us have our parents. Just because someone loves you or cares about you, even business partners, doesn't mean they give you good advice. And a lot of times, we're mistaken, because my mom overloves me still. Um, and when I made that decision to go against her, I started realizing, you know, what does my mom know about? I was sure the internet was not a fad. <laughs> <laughs> so I took that job. But it really is something that stuck with me, because what happened earlier in my life is I take my mom's advice, you know, because she sacrificed so much for me. And, you know, she was a teacher, a second grade teacher. So she's great catalyst. If I wanted help in education, I'm sure she was terrific, as my siblings had you know, experienced. But a lot of things in life she knew nothing about. And so I would resent her because I'd listen to her and make it, it, you know, choices of you know, where to live or, or you know, business. And, I, and it happens. I see so many people in business. They'll take advice from their wives or husbands or business partners and ask them things they don't have any situational knowledge about. Um, so I learned that valuable lesson at a young age. Now, I was lucky. I became rich in nine months. We sold. I worked for West Publishing. And in three years, we sold, in 1995, the business for $3.4 billion in 1995. Um, that was a lot of money back then. It wasn't a whole long list of billionaires. Um, so it was really an accelerator in my career. I was smart enough to lose my ego and stop branding myself as a lawyer. I started calling myself a technology guru. 
I then uh, worked in Silicon Valley, learned about financing, raised money, 169 million with Accenture. And then at 32, I was CEO of Samsung's first phone division. I was actually the CEO of the first smartphone. Back then they called them convergence devices. It was a Windows CE device with Bluetooth. And I had tremendous mentors. Uh, Bill Gates was one of them. Uh, all, all types of great people that I was smart enough to learn from. The, the dumb thing is when I retired, uh, which they forced me out because the company became the second largest manufacturer of phones, I was way over my skis, so they gave me a shitload of money to leave. I used to tell people, because of my ego when I was young, oh, you know, I, I left, I semi-retired. You know, it, looking back, being a board member now of a lot of companies, no, they kicked me out. Right. I, was just, <laughs> I was just blessed they gave me a lot of money to leave. Um, and it was cool, because I branded myself that way. Then surrounded myself with the wrong people, the wrong ideas, became an entrepreneur. And my real journey started then because um, I actually lost everything. And uh, yeah. on paper, over $100 million, I owned a ski mountain, a golf course. I owned 33 properties in San Diego alone. Um, and I just made one mistake in my life. Besides surrounding myself with the wrong people, the wrong ideas, and doing the wrong things, I never asked for help. The way I got there was literally asking for help all along the way yeah. with radical humility because I had nothing and, and when I made it, it had everything you ever dreamed of and I lost my radical humility and I, I never asked one person like, hey, what should I do? I, it, you know, I'm still young. I didn't realize that just because I had all this money on paper that the bank would stop giving me money. So when things started changing and I got in lawsuits and went through li my liquid cash, I couldn't borrow against a golf course that was worth $112 million. Yeah. The bank was like, no. Yeah. I'm like, no, but I have equity in the golf course. They're like, I don't care. <laughs> you go find it somewhere else because we'll take this golf course back and all your equity with it. Yeah. Right? And it was a mean, mean world. And it wasn't a compassionate world. Yeah, right. uh, and so I lost everything. Uh, but that was my quantum shift in life. The uh, best day of my life is the day that I had to claim bankruptcy. Uh, I would tell you 10 years ago, if someone told me I had to stand in front of rooms of thousands of people, let alone 50, and tell you that I'm a moron, was an asshole, and I lost everything, I would have rather killed myself. To admit to, I still choke up, because to, to admit to my mom that I was that much of a moron, my mom made $17,000 a year. Yeah. My mom never had to work again. I bought a house, a car. My family never had to work again. And I gave it all away with my ego. Yeah. So that's where my journey started. I met Lee, but I shifted, more importantly, I shifted my life into four things. Gratitude, because I realized it gave me perspective, right? My past was wonderful. I truly, sincerely believe that the best day of my life was when I lost everything. It saved me. Uh, my present was better, and my future was always even brighter. I knew, and I told my wife, she, she was very spiritual. I was an idiot. And then I became very spiritual and very confident. When I lost everything, my wife was literally sh shattered and terrified. And I literally told her, hey, wh what are you worried about? I go, I, when I graduated law school, I, I didn't know anything. I never had a real job, right? I played football. I got, like, what did I know? I, I didn't know anybody. I was never bad to anyone, but I didn't know anything or anyone. And it took me nine months to make a million dollars. How long do you think it's going to take me now? Right? And, and I go, I just trust the universe and I'm gonna do it with the gratitude. Two, forgiveness is empathy. So I really, and I only had to forgive one person. 
the hardest person. I was talking to some of the guys in the back. Like, it was amazing. When I learned, the minute I forgave myself, everybody forgave me. Because you can't give what you don't have. And forgiveness is really, really powerful. The third thing I learned was accountability. I, I, I went through a phase where I blamed everybody else. The economy, like what fool buys all that real estate in 2007, you know. Uh, but my lawsuits and the people that committed fraud on me and all the people that owed me money. And what, the day that I took accountability, and my mom taught me the lesson, ask yourself two questions. What did I do to attract this into my life? And what am I supposed to learn from it? Yeah. Man, my life changed. I was in control all of a sudden, and I knew I'd make everything back. And then finally, communication, which we'll get into our Q&A, but effective communication was important. I always could communicate well this way. I could sell myself. I could sell anything. But what I really learned was communicate this way to that which inspires me. Because I learned that if I can stay in spirit uh, and stay passionate about what I do, it's easy to be fired up when you start something. Right? You guys are all entrepreneurs and business. It's so easy. When I, I love that part. Oh, I got this great idea. You know, everyone's all passionate. And it's even easier to stay fired up at the end. Oh, my God. You know, I just exited my company for 100. That's pretty easy to stay passionate and inspired about. But if, so, <laughs> if someone told me, hey, man, in order to get to this $100 million, you're going to have to go through all of this stuff in between. Man, I'm not sure I'd have the heart or soul or mind to do it. And what I learned was I used to attach all my happiness to these outcomes. I was goal-oriented. Man, when I graduate law school, I'm going to be happy. When I make my first million, I'll be happy. When my first 10 million, I'll be happy. When I get married, the day, the day I detached myself from the outcome was the day it really got cool for me. Is that, And people get confused. Don't get confused about detaching from an outcome. Have your goals, your visions, visualize everything but detach your happiness from the outcome. I learned this great thing, and if you take one thing away from today, just think about this. My happiness is the enjoyment of the pursuit of my potential, period. Say that again. Happiness is the enjoyment of the pursuit of your potential. So I wake up every day to provide value, and nothing, there is no good or bad, it's just like, in fact, when things get more challenging, I get even more exciting, and I just enjoy it, and I'm like, something good's coming, yeah. right? I'm going through this expansive. Because opportunity is showing up. Exactly, I'm expanding, and it hurts, and I have shifted my perspective and my vision to enjoy that pursuit of my potential, not just as a business person, you know, as I, I'm an author, best-selling author, a speaker, best speaker. I now have a TV show that is top. I have my podcast hit number four on business for iTunes. And these were goals of mine to have the best that I could. But for me, I've enjoyed the whole thing, the getting of sponsors and all the things that happened to get there. And it just gets more and more exciting where in the past I'd have been like, I'm not going to be happy till this happens. And then I'm just creating resistance for myself. So, so there's a couple of things that I've always picked up on the things you're doing. And I can hear in your podcast, I can hear it in the story that you just told me right now. But mentors are key. And what's interesting, even when you talk to Sean Merriman. Mm -hmm. Yeah. From the Chargers. Yeah, from the Chargers. Uh, like you, you, always die, you always dig in when he starts talking about the people that he met that got him away. And you almost stop the podcast and say, almost like name them. Let's yeah. compare the notes. So what is it about... How do you know that mentor? And what is it about a mentor that 
gives you that extra step? What is it the thing you're looking for? That's a really interesting question. Thank you, because yeah. a lot of people don't go that far. I usually get away with always have three mentors, <laughs> pe people that sit in the situation that you want to be in. I've already taught these people for six hours. Now it's you easy. <laughs> yeah, now it's easy. So what do I think of, and, and I'm going to give you a quick exercise if it's cool. I close my eyes and think of my personal values, my integrity, my character, et cetera, and I try to think of that person. It could be a person that's alive or dead or you know, that I've read. And so for me, with my personal values, I think of Napoleon Hill. Yeah, that's love, yeah, yeah, right? Love, think, and grow rich. Yeah. It, it aligns with my character. You know, I, what I like about I wrote my book, I went to Napoleon Hill Foundation and asked for help and said, I want to write a book connected to goodness, which I'll give you today. Uh, it, you know, you can manifest what you want, but you got to take action. That's what I liked about Napoleon Hill. You can't sit at home high on your mom's couch. Oh, I'm going to have a Ferrari. You got to dream about the Ferrari in a certain way, but then you got to work for it with strategy, discipline, and awareness. So I close my eyes there. Then I look at experiential values. Who has the experience that I want to have as a mentor? So there's someone that survived the process and kind of has that. Or expanded like I did. And so when I close my eyes and think of that, it's Wayne Dyer. Wayne Dyer changed my life. Simple things like change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. What you resist, persists. The idea of the power of intention. If anyone's never read that book, highly suggest it. How the power of intention. And I was one of those weirdos as I was getting back into shape, Tim. I would work out to Wayne Dyer in my ears. Oh, yeah. Right? <laughs> so it was like, yeah. It was like doubly hard to work out when it's not like some cool music. And you're like, oh. And sometimes that's the woo-woo music. Yeah. Then third uh, is the giving values. And this is where it gets interesting to me. When I close my eyes, there's a founder of the Unstoppable Foundation where we've educated 31,000 women in Africa that never would have been educated before. And I think to myself, wow, if I could give like that. She worked for no salary for 10 years. Strong woman, Cynthia Kersey, I think of her and I'm like, 31,000 people educated that never were educated before. That's significant giving. And she was not a billionaire when she did it. No, no, not at all. And then. The, the in, most interesting is receiving. So when I close my eyes and think of receiving values, one person that pops up that most people were surprised about was my father. Now my father left, like I told you, six kids, right? My mom, you know, was fairly manipulative and protective of us, but my dad didn't even remember my birthdays. So I, I may even choke up still because I you fight through these issues, but he, he would tell me when I called him and said, hey, you know, I'm 11 years old, you forgot my birthday. Yeah. Like, this is my day. He said, oh, well, I don't believe in birthdays. Ugh. Right, thank you. That's why I felt, right? <laughs> and because my mom wasn't the most perfect person, she was just an awesome mom, and I'd give her anything, she liked to add fuel to the fire. So instead of calling my dad and reminding him, hey, your son's going to be hurt of his birthday, she would wait for him not to call so she could say what a shit he was and make it worse on me. And I know she didn't do it intentionally. I'm 49 years old now, and I love her, but we're all human. And I'm sure she was very hurt that he left her that way. Yeah. And that was her revenge, right? Cool. Yep. So, but my dad, why would I think of my dad in receiving? For several reasons. One, most people love to give. Who here loves to give? Yeah. And it's amazing when I ask it, everybody immediately goes like this. Who here loves to receive? Did you feel the energy? Half of you didn't even raise your hand. Nobody was quite sure even. Yeah. Now, I'm here to tell you that I'm one of the most, well, I'm a philanthropist pimp. I pimp out athletes and celebrities <laughs> for charity. But I'm all humanitarian. I, I believe in giving everything away. Uh, and I literally, I, I, lo I love to give. But most people have a problem with receiving. 
That's where, and it's just as important to receive as to give because you can't give what you don't have. If you don't forgive yourself, you can't give it. If I have $100 million, I can change and get, I give it to everyone, starting with the people most relative to me and keep going out and out and out. $100 million goes a lot farther than $10. Yeah. And so I believe that you should receive and that creates more giving. So my dad, for my 30th birthday, remembered it. And I don't think my mom called him. And it was interesting because I got to see him and he came in and he had a jacket, a, a, a suit coat for me. And he, he was always ragging on me, right? And first he would push me and then when I became successful, I became competitive with him. My dad was wealthy, he retired in his 30s, he bought racehorses, trained, owned and raced horses. Uh, no, he wasn't a jockey, I'm not that small. He raced, har <laughs> he raced harness horses. I wish he was a jockey, because I'd be like, damn, you're talking to your dad. But no, he, so you know, here's a guy that basically only knew how to receive, hmm. right? He, and he, and you know, it was just amazing, it was all about him, but he gave me this jacket, and he saw my arrogance. I think he saw a lot of himself in me when I was 30, right? It was very obvious now that I'm older. And he gave me this jacket, I'm like, was so excited, right? I'm like, shit, he gave me something, let alone remember. So I was so excited, so I go to put it on, and I thought maybe it would be a, like something from him, because he's not that thoughtful, but it actually fit me. So I knew that he called one of my siblings and asked what size or something, and I put it on, I put it on, and I realized he tore all the pockets out of the jacket. <laughs> and I was like, Dad, this thing's all ripped. There's no pockets anymore. He goes, oh, I know. I go, well, how am I supposed to wear it? He goes, oh, I didn't give it to you to wear. I'm looking and he says, no, that's to hang in your closet. I was like, what do you mean, hang in my closet? He goes, because I want you every day when you go to get dressed up, sorry, <laughs> to know you're not taking anything with you. Mm. So here's this guy who so challenged me my whole life, to receive, yeah. right? Yeah. And although I saw him in a certain light because of the way my mom built my perspective, I didn't spend much time with him. He actually got life a lot more than I thought he did. And I think a lot of circumstantial things happened where he couldn't express himself to his six children that happened. But I, I have that jacket still. And when I lost everything, it was the one thing that I was like, damn. He was right. <laughs> exactly. exactly. And I have that jacket, and it is. You can't take it with you, but you have to receive it. Because there's nothing to put in the pockets that don't exist. Put it in somebody else's pocket. There's not someone that I pass that I don't try to help or to give to. And in fact, if you read Compassionate Capitalism, my whole business model is based off of providing value. I believe this quite simply. Um, I used to take uh, to give, but I used to promise to, you know, I'm a great salesman. I would sell, back end sell, oversell. And I'm one of the few people who would tell you that I exaggerated and even lied to people. No. To be successful. And I know everyone thinks, oh my God, you're a liar. But if you think about it, when I hire new employees, the first thing I ask them is, oh, do you like to, what do you love to do when you're not working? And they'll say, oh, ski. And I'm like, oh, do you get high when you ski? Oh, no, no. I'm like, oh, do you lie? No, you never lie? No. <laughs> and then I say to everyone else in my company, who here lies? Everyone raises their hand. I'm like, so you lied to me the first day. Yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> I'm a liar. I try not to lie. Sometimes I lie to people on the way they look and what I can. I lied a lot more. But the point is, when I did all that selling, I created a void for me to fill. And what I realized about myself with radical humility is I'm not perfect. I'm an inefficient, ineffective, and statistically unsuccessful person. 
and I can do my best to fill the void, but most of the time, although I preach exceeding expectations, it's really hard to meet people's expectations. Absolutely. So what I learned was what if I let that go and instead just woke up every day providing value? Creating a void on this side of the equation, meaning I wake up every day of service. Providing, whether it's with my customers, my clients, my wife, my family, my kids, all I'm looking for the majority of the time is how can I be of service? What I've learned is I create a void for the universe to fill. And I know one thing about the universe because I've studied quantum physics, physics, and metaphysics. It's exact. And so if I just keep providing service, I open my vessel, I create a void, and the universe is, has to fill it back up. And that's where all these successful people keep saying, I can't even stop the flow. There's so much, and that's the where I'm at in my life now. It's just incredible. I keep just being of service and it's almost just sheds and it just keeps coming more and more and more. And that's where the statements, the more I give, the more I get. Yeah. The one that's interesting to me is a lot of people say, the more I give, I get 10 times back as much. Has anyone ever heard that, yeah. right? It's mathematically impossible. <laughs> it just feels like 10 times as much you want to know why? Because the universe is so concise. It comes to you so fast. It feels, we're not used to that. It feels like it's so much more because it comes so easily. Rev Thinking is produced by Rev Think. If you're a creative entrepreneur, feel free to connect with us at RevThink.com. And hey, if you like the podcast, please do us a favor by subscribing on iTunes or SoundCloud and give us your feedback. And of course, please spread the word.